This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Petra Desatova and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen. It is my great pleasure today to introduce Matthew Phillips, a senior research analyst at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office in the United Kingdom and a former lecturer in Asian history at Aberystwyth University. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. It's a great pleasure to have you on today. Pleasure to be here. Matt's research has been very much focused on the Cold War period, particularly in Thailand. And you might have come across his really, really interesting book called Thailand in the Cold War that was published in 2015 by Routledge. I had the pleasure of reading sections of this book as part of my PhD, and I am really fascinated with the research that Matt's been doing on this particular book, but also elsewhere. Let's just start asking you, what kind of research are you doing these days? So my current research, I guess a lot of it was in a way born out of the the research I was doing during the Cold War. So one of the um, issues that I was particularly concerned with as I was doing that research, but then particularly actually reflecting on the uh, research, was the role of ideology in the craft of scholarship itself. So I worked uh, a little bit in the book on the ideas around modernization theory, which of course was pushed very strongly during the Cold War by uh, the United States. After that, thinking about where the lineage came from that fed into the ideologies around Thai studies in the early days, and actually how those have developed since. I recently published an article in Southeast Asia Research called For the Love of the Thais, looking at the way in which scholars in the 1950s came to Thailand with a huge amount of idealism. Mm -hmm. And this was very much fed by this kind of post-World War II moment when America was, of course, at the top of its game, so to speak. It was incredibly powerful. And actually, you had two sides of that coin within the United States itself. So you had the sort of the harder approach to power. And then you had the more sort of soft, liberal approach. Um, And this cultural milieu that kind of developed around particularly university campuses, such as Cornell, uh, Yale, um, Stanford, that saw the American moment, this post-war moment as one of opportunity, and that really kind of sort of looked at the world through this prism of wanting something better for humanity as a whole. And this was actually very much linked in some respects to to a pre-war milieu around missionary activity, that indeed a lot of the academics that came into the American system in the 1950s had a missionary background um, or had connections with missionaries. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and and of course, a lot of the knowledge base that was used in going into places like Thailand came initially from uh, missionary activity. So in Thailand, you have people like Kenneth Landon, for example, who was a missionary before the war, but then worked with the OSS, the Office for Strategic Services, during the war to uh, establish the knowledge of Thailand that became very important for the shaping of US policy toward Thailand. So the links here between this kind of um, cultural interest in expanding um, opportunity and in understanding the world and in getting to know the people of the world was very much linked to US power and US interests in in this post-war period. And I guess that these scholars, obviously, then going to Thailand during that time would have would have had a lot of ideological baggage that they would apply on what they experienced and what they've seen in Thailand. So what kind of impact did that have on the development of Thai studies? Because I guess 
before that time, there probably weren't that many scholars actively engaging with the Thai, Thai studies, especially from the US. What I, what I noticed, particularly when I was working on the, um, the article for The Love of the Thais, was that there was this great sense of trying to speak for the Thais, for mm-hmm. almost advocate for the Thais, right? Um, and I think this came from a bunch of reasons. First of all, a lot of the people that went there were anthropologists. So they spent a lot of time living within the, the society and particularly going up and living in a particular village. So, yeah. you know, there was this sort of idea back in the 1950s and 60s that anthropologists had their village. Um, so they became sort of the advocate for that for that community. Of course, in Thailand, you had the work around Bang Chan, um, which was a very specific um, and, you know, a huge amount of resource went into um, understanding that particular village. Um, but even those people who who went to the to, to Bang Chan saw themselves almost as sort of patrons of the village, and they literally talked about themselves in that way. So I think what they um, sought to do was to bring the Thai voice into this cultural milieu, to make the American, and they very much saw themselves as somewhat opposed to the more hard power objectives of the US state. So the military, and this particularly as you get into the Vietnam War, the more militarized response to the Cold War, they saw themselves as the moral and good balance to to this hard power. Yeah, you mentioned the Bangtan village. Could you just very briefly explain the significance of that village for our listeners who might not necessarily be familiar with Thailand as much? So Bangtan was a settlement just north of um, what is, is currently in Bangkok, but at the time it was north of Bangkok. And it was um, set up in the early 1950s as a, it was, it was referred to as a, as a sort of living laboratory where um, scholars from the West would come and observe the transition from traditional community that was very much disconnected from the world to a modern society. And this, of course, was underpinned by these very strong ideas about what modernity was and that modernity was something that could be tracked. The, the very fact that they considered this village to be somewhat dislocated and isolated from the world may have looked to be the case from the perspective of a 1950s academic. But in reality, of course, we know that you know, the, the idea of the pristine um, subsistence-based village is itself a myth which has a long history of its own. It's, it's there in colonial um, understandings of, uh, you know, in, in British India, for example. Um, this is very much a Western view of the Asian village that is imposed upon it. And that really sort of was removed through to the 1970s, by which point, of course, Bang Chan had become much more integrated into Bangkok. It becomes the model or the sight of um, understanding what this transition looks like. It's very interesting in this view of, of where this tradition is and, and where the modernity is the kind of the linear view of that transition in itself. And I recall a similar discussion that you had in your in your book as well in terms of the Thai view. So if you kind of wanted to, even for Thais, if you wanted to see the authentic, the real Thailand, you would have to go out to the village to experience that. So the, the village has had very much this romanticized image of, you know, this is the real Thailand. And I think in many ways, it still kind of continues to this day when if you want to see the real Thailand, you have to go beyond Bangkok and you have to see the villages and you have to see these people working in the paddy fields. But the reality is that most of these farmers are no longer primarily farmers. They have incomes from other sources and so on and so forth. So this is a very interesting way of actually seeing that these ideas are there and are adopted by the the foreign foreign scholars as well back in the, the 50s and 60s. 
What kind of effect did this agency of these Western scholars had on the evolution of Thai studies? You know, what, and I, I was very careful not to come across as sort of too critical because yeah. I mean, we all are products of our age. And cool. We all have our own internal moralities that are themselves linked to the the sites of power that we that we associate ourselves with. You know, in the colonial period, it was the civilizing mission. The world was organized into despots and civilized, you know, enlightened leaders. And this and this was very much an evolution of that. But I think that what what a lot of these scholars did did miss, and I mean, this was actually very well documented and discussed back in the seventies by people like Benedict Anderson, mm-hmm. was that there was a naivety about the role in which these studies played in substantiating and re entrenching traditional modes of modes of power in Thailand itself. Mm-hmm. And so, but it also coupled, and this is the bit that I was very keen to emphasise in the book. Um, it coupled itself with a new modern cosmopolitanism that was emanating out of Bangkok and that was particularly strong amongst the Sino-Thai communities. And that, of course, were desperate in many respects to connect to this nation, to be part of this nation. And what I think they did was really, was they created a kind of hybrid that brought back traditional ideas of king, a sort of more sort of feudal-based society with the villagers, you know, happy in a kind of subsistence yes. arrangement. But they also really commodified it. So this is where the role that the tourist authority of Thailand plays from the late 1950s, early 60s, in creating this vista of the rural with the Thai peasant within it as the basis for the the national community as it emerged. And foreign academics were very powerful. They were very important in feeding into that discursive shift, if you like. And then, of course, we see that this village really survives all the way through. So it becomes, for example, the basis of King Bumipon's sufficiency economy. We see it very much in those sort of film depictions of the village in the in the post post Asian financial crisis, um, and of course it's still it's still there today. You know, and I don't think that that necessarily needs to be don't need to blame the <laughs> scholars entirely for that. But I, it could not have happened without this legitimizing yeah. uh, force of the scholar. And I think that this is really important because it forces us to reflect on ourselves about the role that we play as scholars in shaping and informing internal discussions about what it means to be Thai within time, especially when a lot of those scholars will have a particularly good relationship with urban middle-class Thais who will have their own specific understanding of what the nation is. Yes. Um, and that often is quite dislocated from the very diverse nation of not just in terms of language and cultures, but also in terms of status and standing and employment opportunity and all of that stuff, the very diverse nation that Thailand actually is. Um, it's very easy to kind of homogenize or to put Thailand into a into one category, which is, of course, absolutely in the service of the very state, which often we're critiquing as scholars. Exactly. It's fascinating that when you go and ask someone in Bangkok, what does it mean to be Thai to them? And then you go and ask someone, let's say, in the Northeast, the Isan region, you get completely different answers that have nothing, completely nothing in common. So a lot of people that I talk to in Isan, they would define themselves primarily as Lao rather than Thai. Whereas in Bangkok, you know, that would be com- completely like, no, I'm Thai, I'm this, I'm this. They have a very clear idea of what it means in some ways. And then as soon as you go other places, it changes a lot. And what's fascinating is when you speak to villagers, 
you know, for example, I've done quite a lot of research up in um, Petroborn province mm-hmm. on Cold War identities. And, you know, particularly for that older generation, most of which came from Isan, they very much get and understand that the, the Thailand or the Thai nation is an ideological construct that's been brought to them <laughs> and which they interact with in different ways. They very much objectify it. Which is interesting because often they are the subjects of the nation in the eyes of the urban middle classes. So there is this sort of this sort of constant tension and um, ambiguity around around what it means to be Thai. It always seems to be the case that things on the surface sometimes look quite simple and not very complicated. But once you start scratching that surface, you really realize that there are so many nuances to these things and and issues and problems that you were not initially aware of. And the kind of the deeper you go, the deeper you realize how complicated these things around culture, identity, ethnicity, and these kind of things are. Thailand, especially kind of going back to what you were saying about tourism, is being pretty much presented as, a, as this very homogenous country. And although there is some space for promotion of, of culture, it is still done very much, or, you know, different sort of regional traditions and cultures, it's still done in 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 the confines of this this idea of the, the unified Thai nation and this Thainess as a, as a dominant principle that really has a lot to do with social behaviour. So it's not just about necessarily the cultural traditions and things like that, but also how you're supposed to behave as a Thai. And I know that you've written a great deal on that as well. But before we go down this particular rabbit hole, I know that you are also doing some research on cosmological readings of King Pumipons and Queen Sirikit's diplomatic tours during this Cold War period. So could you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, so I touched on the tours, or I touched particularly on the trip to the United States in the book. Yes. But I was always slightly dissatisfied, I think, as we all are with our first book, uh, uh, with some of the conclusions and the analysis there. And I just felt there was something more to understand. And actually, one of the difficulties that I had Mm -hmm. in overcoming this very sort of lineal view of history that is imposed upon Thailand through modernisation theory and later through Marxist scholarship that has really tended to kind of buy into this teleological view. I've always found this sort of separation of tradition and modernity very, very crude and actually not really relative to what you're really seeing. So what I really wanted to do was try to understand what is the link between ideology, which is something which is constructed, which feeds into propaganda campaigns, strong public public relations messaging, which of course we know that Thailand, particularly under King Bumipon, has been very, very good at. How does that link with culture and the role that culture plays? So what I did was, is I started looking much more closely, not just at the archival textual sources, mm-hmm. but um, of the images that came out of those tours. And in particular, this was a, a project that I was running out of Singapore with a colleague there, Professor Naoko Shimazu, who does a lot of work on Bandung and the theatre of diplomacy. Mm-hmm. And we were very much trying to get into how do you tell that story, that deeper sort of anthropology of diplomacy? Mm-hmm. And actually, how do you communicate and get other people to think in that way? Because we talk about cultures of diplomacy or diplomatic culture, and, that, and often there's a kind of confusion between the two. And so we decided to go for images to use images as a way of unlocking this scholarship and a way this different view of diplomacy. And I actually started with King Bumipon's trip to Myanmar in 1960, March 1960, which was obviously wrapped up in all of these complicated politics. I mean, we all know the relationship between uh, Myanmar and Thailand is long and difficult. And particularly the Thai elite had at that point and throughout the 19th century, very strong views about the 
Burmese, going back to, of course, the sacking of Ayutthaya in 1767. And those views had survived. Um, and they survived because they were connected to these, to the Chakri dynasty and rooted in a kind of sense of, of, of we self, particularly amongst that, that national elite. So how did they manage this diplomatic visit, which was rooted in a new post-colonial diplomacy that had to be modern, that had to integrate these new realities about the Cold War? Um, and that was really where it, where it all began. Thailand and, and Burma or Myanmar have been sort of arch enemies throughout the history. So that there's a long history of animosity and mutual warfare. So that's where these Shall I say stereotypical view comes from that Myanmar is very much seen as the enemy state. They're both friends and enemies. Like the whole of that Southeast Asian world, if you go back to the pre-colonial era, they were rubbing up against each other constantly, right? And they had these very strong ideas. This is where we get into notions of cosmology, right? And hierarchy. You know, the kings competed with each other to be the, the most associated or aligned with the Dharma, to demonstrate their barami, their potency. Yes. Um, and diplomacy was all about that. There were sort of structures of diplomacy. They were all about reinforcing the centrality of the king. So the king had his tributary states, who would, of course, reinforce his, his potency. But you also then had neighbouring states that bought into the same ideas. And so they would, at times, very much sort of feed the narrative that they were both great great centres of power that could um, bestow power upon each other. But of course, at times when they acted out of line and out of, the, out of line with the thinking of the particular polity, they would become unnatural, out of alignment with the Dharma, the universal cosmic law. And therefore, uh, and that was very much what happened in 1767. So when the Burmese defeated the Thai, um, the Siamese at Ayutthaya in, in, in 1767, this was seen as a absolutely catastrophic act that undermined the, you know, the Holy Kingdom, the centre of the Thai cosmos, Mount Meru itself. So it, it fed into a generations of huge amounts of bitterness amongst the elite that had memories of that. Of course, the wars themselves actually rolled on, so there would continue to be conflict. And what you find then is that the whole shaping of that colonial period in Siam, as it, as it was then, of course, was connected to a sense of increased superiority amongst the Thais mm. looking over at Myanmar. And it was all this relationship between Myanmar and, and Siam had a very uh, important role in providing the Thai with a sense of, of that superiority, of, that their decision to align themselves with Western um, imperial culture aesthetically, but also um, ideologically, was itself in alignment to the Dharma. So they could, you know, square that circle, bringing with them what we might describe as pre-existing or traditional notions of power, along with this very hard commitment to Western modernity within a, within a Thai lens. As we get through to the, the post-colonial period, of course, Thailand suffered some pretty um, humiliating defeat in the 1940s. It was on the wrong side during the war. And then all of a sudden you enter into this new world where Thailand is no longer the only independent nation in the, in, in the region. And you have these old kingdoms that had been colonised and occupied, suddenly independent and articulating their own really clear vision for this post-colonial world. So Unu, Sihanouk in Cambodia, uh, Sukarno in uh, Indonesia, proclaiming themselves as vanguards of the third world and, and tying that, particularly in the case of Myanmar, to a very strong sense 
that they are restoring the Buddhist order, that they are aligning themselves once again to that kind of celestial hierarchy. In the case of Burma, through a commitment to socialism. So socialism is imported, then it is aligned to Buddhism. So Buddhist socialism then becomes the norm in in Myanmar. And of course, this was a huge challenge to the Thai state and to the Thai notion of um, centrality in Southeast Asia, partly because Prime Minister Pibun Songkram had um, aligned himself to the United States very, very early on and was receiving significant amounts of aid from the United States from the early 1950s. And with that, a very heavy commitment against communism, but also a increasingly clear alignment with capitalism and with US-led capitalism, the view that the United States was the central economy and that they, they must align themselves with that uh, in order to bring about the growth that they that they so desired. So you have this real sort of ideological competition that brings together pre-existing notions of diplomatic culture and hierarchy within the region, alongside a kind of global tussle around, you know, ideology of communism, socialism, uh, capitalism. Indeed. Going back a little bit to the idea, um, I'm really fascinated by to look at historical diplomatic relations through the medium of images, in particular looking at these photographs from the King Pumipon's visit to Burma, what could you learn from the image that you couldn't necessarily learn from the written records of that time? So how much of an added value does this approach offer? The first thing is, so particularly if you take the um, the case of the trip to Burma, it's you can, you know, simple stuff like there's a film that you can find on YouTube that gives you the whole trip. But this is produced for a Thai audience. So what do they leave in and what do they leave out? For example, they leave out the trip to the Mausoleum of Martyrs, which is, of course, a um, assertion of Burmese sovereignty. And that kind of feeds into the Burmese narrative. What do they emphasise? They emphasise the trip from the airport with King Bumipon being met by crowds of people um, alongside the road. This, of course, is evoking itself the arrival of the great Chakravati king, um, as you can find in the Tripum, um, the 14th century Thai text on kingship. When he arrives at the airport in Yangon, you um, see that on the door, just behind, as he walks down from the plane, there is the the Garuda, which of course the um, insignia for the for the for the Thai monarchy, yes. have, has been put very strategically so that he walks literally from the Garuda down. And this, of course, builds upon the fact that the flags of the Garuda have been put on the the plane. This is also in the film, again evoking aligning sort of. All, seeking to place that modern American import, the air travel with the Garuda and with these historic icons of diplomatic encounter, which of course always were underpinned by warfare, one of the same thing. So then you, you carry that over and you look at, well, what happens in the United States? You might say that the trip to Myanmar is, perhaps I wouldn't go as far as to say he sort of superimposes a kind of conquering of Myanmar onto the narrative, but certainly yes. seeks to avoid ruling that out, if you yeah. like, so that it suits Thai sensibilities yes. and feeds a certain the narrative of Thais being the, the leaders within the region and in that high position. Precisely. So then you have the trip to the United States. And of course, you have videos, you have much more material there, lots of pictures, lots of um, text as well. And, and you see the see a similar thing. So the, the plane, as depicted in the video that, that was created with the, the Royal Publicity Bureau, along with the United States Information Service, the plane descends onto New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people um, are in awe of the Prat Barami of the king. All of a sudden, 
when you start to look at it through this cosmological lens, New York becomes a periphery rather than the center of, of world power. The skyscrapers become like mountains that evoke the celestial space in the Buddhist cosmos. The people of this foreign continent come out and worship, which is what a ticker tape parade in New York looks like, the great Chakravarti king. Suddenly you start to see these things, right? And the language reinforces them very subtly, very carefully, but it's there. And then with that in mind, you go back and you read and you look and you think about what actually was said and what was done. And I focus particularly on this one quote that King Bhumipon gave when he was speaking with a joint session of Congress. Mm -hmm. So what he says, and he's talking about the bonds of friendship between the United States, and he then gets onto the subject of aid. Now, aid, of course, had been a massive issue for Southeast Asian leaders who had travelled to Washington, New York, during Mm -hmm. this period. Sukarno, for example, makes a massive issue of aid in his address to the Joint Session of Congress, stating very clearly that aid will not buy sovereignty. So this issue of sovereignty and aid is a real problem. Um, of course, the problem for Thailand is it's receiving a lot of aid. So symbolically, the you know, and this was what I emphasized in the book, which I think was perhaps slightly mis- mis- mistaken, mm-hmm. but this seems to imply an imperial relationship. Mm-hmm. The United States has control over Thai foreign policy, which it does, right? Because Thailand's given up its foreign policy once it aligns entirely to the US in the Cold War. So what does King Bumipon do? He associates aid with a Buddhist reading. So this is, this is what he says. Giving of aid is merit in itself. The giver does not expect to hear others singing his praises every day, nor does he expect anything in return. The receiver is grateful. He too, in his turn, will carry out his obligations. So what this does is it transfers something which is associated with aid into something which looks a lot more like tribute yes. in the old diplomatic arrangements which of course serves to flip the whole message. Suddenly you have a foreign country with foreign people that certainly the center of modernity, which is fine because it's a foreign continent. In the Buddhist cosmology, you have Jambu, which is where the people that, that, that know the Dharma live. And then on the other side, you have Uttarakuru, which is a site of you know, perfect people who have everything that they want, but they are in awe of the Chakravati king who comes from Jambu. All of a sudden, you have this playing out on the international stage. And so aid becomes tribute. It is magically transformed into something that puts the United States on the periphery and reinforces the centrality of Thailand, pinned, of course, to the king. And this is why the king becomes so crucial in the propaganda that serves to boost the Thai state through the 1960s. These royal visits are all about building pride and a sense of purpose, centrality, around the king linked to the Thai nation. And it's very successful, as we know. It's absolutely fascinating how this relatively small and in the context of the visit, you could even say relatively insignificant few lines switch the whole concept. And I think many times we look at the foreign policy as something that's out there and for the purpose of the outside, somehow building up the relationships with the foreign and the other. But we often forget to look at the role it plays domestically. And I think this is a very important point that you also make in your book is how these foreign visits were serving primarily a domestic purpose in terms of building up the prestige of the monarchy. Because just by being invited to come to the US and and making that trip, it already has those kind of feelings of added importance. Great power, inviting a Thai king means a lot. 
and can be uh, presented as such in the domestic context as well. And of course, after 1967, when King Bhumipon famously says, I will no longer travel abroad, what do you have now but a dynamic in which foreign leaders must come to him? Yeah. And that again reinforces the centrality of Thailand on the world stage and building that sense of pride and that sense of certainty that a third world nation can also be a cultural superpower. So my final question is if we if we start looking at, at your research from a more holistic way are there any broader points that you can draw about studying history and looking at history in in a more general sense so not necessarily just in in case of Thailand but maybe broader in in the Asian context or even in in the more global context does it have any lessons for us that we can we can take so for me my own journey as a scholar is really about trying to break down my own preconceptions i think it's it's difficult right as a as somebody coming from outside to not look at some of this stuff as exotic and as different and and to get it get excited about that right it's great it's really it's really fun like unlocking and unthinking you know, these new ways of looking at the world i mean with Mary at the center and all of that i find it fascinating but it's also just important just to take a step back and recognize that this is normal yes <laughs> in a Thai context this is the everyday this is the stuff that is just shaping life on a very kind of base level and it's super important uh, i think to not impose your own view and idea and i i know this has been said a lot and the importance of you know and it's not possible to be objective and all of that absolutely of course but it's also just important in acknowledging that that we just constantly reflect on our own preconceptions our own prejudices our own you know emotional and moral investment into what's going on and i you know i think if you look at what's happening in thailand today and if you think about the role that scholarships played particularly since 2006 you know western intellectuals western academics western journalists have played a very significant role in shaping the discourse and just again think about how important it is for protest movements whether that's red or yellow or you know what we have now to align themselves to international discourses and i think that we all just need to just be very careful about making sure that we're not advocating for a certain view of thailand advocating of giving a voice to one group or the other because if you do that you are flattening out a group you're giving them you know you're you're denying agency you're denying the the ability for that group to be a diverse complex strange group of people which we all are and i think there's a few examples which immediately come to mind of kind of groups of people who we talk about urban middle classes for example is just used again and again and again to refer to the yellow shirts rural red shirts from you know yeah these are very broad big categories and i think that it's really important that we as much as possible try to actually listen to what they're saying and not try to advocate for them but yes. try to reflect what's really going on I think that's a very good point to actually finish our discussion on and I do agree that it's never too preposterous to advocate for more reflexivity in our own scholarship because I think as you rightly pointed out it's very easy to get so sucked into our own passions as researchers and our own interests 
and to kind of get completely lost in it without actually reflecting on our own ideologies, our own notions, ideas of what's wrong, what's right, how things should be or shouldn't be. So it's always good to be able to reflect and to see where our ideas are coming from and whether we are trying to impose those on the things that we are studying, observing and working on as well. So thank you very much. This was a really fascinating talk and it was an absolute pleasure to have you on, on today's podcast. And I really hope that we can we can continue this discussion in one way or another in future. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. I'm Petra Desatova, a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. And today I have been talking to Matthew Phillips, a senior research analyst at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office in the United Kingdom and a former lecturer at Aberystwyth University. Thank you. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.